You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today, we're going to talk about caregiving, and we are experiencing a a large increase in the number of people who need caregiving for obvious reasons. We're living longer, and the longer we live, the more likely it is that we're going to need help at some point in our lives. And yet, at the same time, there is a growing shortage in the number of people who are able and willing to provide that kind of care. And so today I thought it was valuable to talk with a gentleman who's trying to do something about this. And my guest today is Matt Lawler, who is the founder and co-chair of SICA. And we're going to talk with Matt about the caregiving industry we're going to get into his background and what motivated him to take this work on and talk about how he's doing with the organization and the impact that he believes he is delivering with it. So, Matt, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you, Art. I've been looking forward to talking with you. Well, Matt, let's get into your background a little bit. Um, tell me about your history. What's your story, so to speak, that sort of led you to this point? Well, let's hope you haven't done a background check on me. (laughs) So uh, I'm an army brat. Uh, I grew up the son of a a career army officer. My mother was, in fact, a whack, which is a story in itself. There were seven kids, and we lived all over the world. Uh, So we would live in Timbuktu and back to Washington, D.C., back to Timbuktu, so two, back to Washington, D.C., we got around, but it was really a yo-yo around Washington, D.C., I must say. I grew up with a wonderful family. I had great parents. I was very lucky. At the same time, they expected a lot out of their kids. And in this case, maybe there was a failure. Uh, I like to think that uh, we're all trying, doing my best. And I was blessed to have them as parents. And I have a great brothers and sisters and so forth. So you want to really find out about me. I'm an athlete. It was the challenge when you're moving every other year is you got to break into a new set of friends. It takes you six months of crying, missing your old friends. And, but then when you make new friends and the accumulation of that is that you end up having friends across the world. So I went the usual route was in uh, parochial schools and public schools, lived in Japan, Okinawa, 
Korea, a lot of different states in the United States. And the family finally settled in Chicago after my dad retired. I will say that the one and only time we had a family boat, because after all, my, my dad was an army general, we were in Seoul, Korea, and the family was anticipating going to Washington, D.C., and where he retired. Well, we got orders to Chicago and we were up in arms. We didn't want to go to Chicago. We want to go back home in Washington, D.C. So my dad said, uh, well, look, we'll have a family vote. Now, we never had a family vote. This, this is uh, the military. So we had a vote and it was basically seven to one that he should retire early and we go back to Washington, D.C. So we moved to Chicago. <laughs> and uh, the irony is that we loved it. Uh, Chicagoans are wonderful people. It's a mix. It's a big city. It's got energy. It's got really professional people. It's got diversity. And they're Midwest. If you're an army brat and lived all over the way I have, and I've done a lot of traveling in international business, you learn it, there's pluses in every place that you live. And there's always, it's just a matter of just learning the ropes and finding the people that you enjoy and you know, just keeping an open mind with, uh, as you're meeting new people. We love Chicago. My dad retired there. I went to, I guess my third high school <laughs> in Chicago, a big one, you know, over 5,000 students, uh, graduated in, I guess, 66, which is going to date most of your audience, I'm afraid. If I drool a little bit, they won't see it, right? Uh, so uh, in any case, I ended up uh, going back east, went to the University of Pennsylvania. I'm a little guy, and I played football, and I went to a large high school with big guys that surrounded me. So I showed up at Penn. I'd gotten a call there. that I counted that as a recruiting call, but I was truly a walk-on. They figured out that I should go play defensive back. I did that. Started in business school, switched after the first year into engineering, which is crazy, and played lacrosse, had a job. I was busier than can be. And it was a very challenging four years. I was in ROTC, was about to go to NAM. And at that time, they were beginning to wound down, but I ended up having a former Penn football player give me my physical, and he flunked me. <laughs> And wow. uh, honestly, uh, I was elated about that. Uh, then it was a free two years, but I look back and I wish I had served there. Not that I supported the war or anything like that. It's just fellow Americans were there and I could go anywhere, but I would not want to go to Vietnam, although they're big allies they're wonderful people. I know all this. It's just plain and simple. I got a free ride for two years. It was a Wonderful, though, two years. I worked for a NASA project that was building what's called the Earth Resources Technology Satellite, which is just fascinating. This is 50 years ago, and what they were doing technologically yeah. was amazing. I learned that I got straight A's. I could add and subtract in college, but I had no talent as an engineer. All these guys got C's when I was getting A's. They were the talented engineers, so I went to business school. <laughs> Yeah. I uh, managed to get into Harvard, loved the place. The diversity was just amazing. 
And a lot of people talk about connections that you have in business. Well, honestly, I made friends there. And yeah, I had some connections and it's a, it was a great education and a nice piece of paper to have. But it was a wonderful couple of years. I founded a little business up there. We uh, hired our teachers. <laughs> the young faculty at Harvard uh, needed to get consulting jobs. Well, a buddy and my, and we founded a company that got consulting jobs. As if we knew what we were talking about. We did have a faculty supporting us. Um, I got recruited to a big bank in New York. And that was the last place I thought I was going to work. But it was the chairman of the bank that wanted, you know, he had a little staff. I was the junior guy. I didn't want to move to New York, just like Chicago. Didn't want to, over my dead body, will I move to New York. Loved it. (laughs) I loved it. I got way ahead of myself at 30 years old. I was running a region of of, uh, branches in Manhattan. Uh, I ended up heading their international investment company. I'll never forget going to a board meeting in Austria. It was my first one. And, you know, I was practically sucking my thumb. And there are these old guys, very profound. <laughs> and uh, one of them sat in the chairman's seat. And by the, the bank I served with was uh, called Chemical Bank. It's now J.P. Morgan. The upshot yeah. is I was way ahead of myself, but it was a fabulous uh, seven, eight years. And then I had done a little bit of political work in my part time in uh, New York. Worked with the with a presidential candidate Mo Udall. Many of your many of your listeners uh, yeah. may not remember him, but he was a big, mm-hmm. tall, very Lincoln-esque guy. Uh, I didn't always agree mm-hmm. with all his politics, but I'll tell you, I thought he had high integrity. And nobody, you get in that job as president, and you're learning from day one. Uh, nobody can be prepared for mm-hmm. that office. So I supported him. He he did very well in New York, but didn't quite win. But I got invited to come come down to Washington. I served in the White House for a year for the last six months of Jimmy Carter and the first six months of Ronald Reagan. I got politics out of my system. This is a tough living. <laughs> Ended up founding my own company. We did venture capital. One of the ideas that germinated was basically what is now called internet or online banking. So it was 1989. We started out with a really neat little device, kind of like your, your we call it the screen phone. It wasn't mobile, but it had a screen, mm-hmm. used some of my international connections to have it built in, inexpensively. We'd give away the phone and you can get your online banking. Well, we ended up uh, after 20 years, a public company, we had a couple of thousand banks. We had relationships uh, with about 15% of U.S. homes. And after 20 years, it was time for me to move on. Getting to the real core of the discussion here, while I have the best job in the world, I think right now, the truth of the matter is my wife, Rosemary, kicked me out of the house and get out of here, get to work. <laughs> I needed that. And that was part of the reason why we started online resources. And Rosemary, I consider next to my mother, uh, let's put it on an equal par with mom, who's upstairs now. I admire her as one. She was a great caregiver for her children. My mother was in a, a basically a military retirement home and had wonderful care, which is one of the reasons we founded SICA to encourage that. But she was there all the time caring for my mother. So the bottom line of it is that she's a co-sponsor. I do all the work and I report to her in other ways. That's what I do with my life now full time is uh, the foundation. Fascinating. You know, there, there are so many people who have gone through their careers in business 
done very well. And then they get to a point where they realize those days are over and they think they're going to go out and play golf or be um, on a boat or something for, for the duration. And then they realize that there's more to life and, and that they need to find new meaning. And for you, you seem to have found that in this whole caregiving need that we have in our society. Can you tell me in our audience a little bit about what you've learned about caregiving and what the challenge and opportunities are for us as donors and givers? Well, uh, actually, uh, it started, what we do is we go into nursing homes and hospitals and we have software that, that is smartphone based. So the caregivers recognize each other and they nominate each other for the SEEK award. We select a, an honoree each month or quarter, depending upon the size of the facility. So what we do is we recognize excellence and we use peer to peer to do that. The real basis, there are a couple of, couple of reasons other than joking about Rosemary kicking me out of the house. Uh, I was working in a nursing home, volunteering, a lot of Medicaid, and it was just a very, very tough situation, an eye-opener. I had done a number of volunteer work, board work with nonprofit health, health care related. My mother was in a, an absolute wonderful nursing home, but that was a motivator. But what, what I learned in the commercial world that we're applying here to answer your question is that Peer-to-peer -peer recognition is just incredibly powerful. And while I'm a big admirer of the advancements in medicine, the technology and so forth, it's really necessary. But all that technology without human touch and caring is like the sound of one hand clapping. You need both. And so I just took... Uh, what we did is we took the model that, that uh, we had at Online Resources, the company that I had founded and headed for 20 years. Every quarter, wasn't my idea, uh, every quarter, faithfully, <laughs> and we had to be a very large company, but faithfully, as CEO, I would go out and I'd ask the employees, do they have somebody that they'd like to nominate with the, for the SEEK Award? And it, it wasn't the SEEK Award, excuse me, it was the Elite Award. We're now doing the SEEK Award. That exercise was just, it brought the staff together. It connected me with the staff. And every quarter we'd have a company-wide meeting and at, we'd do the usual kind of updating everybody. But at the end, we'd present the Elite Award. And if they were lucky, they escaped without Matt making fun of anything that they did. Obviously, it was good fun. And it was a celebration. But pretty much they got a pat on the back, maybe a little certificate, that was it. But it drove the culture in the company. They all got to know me, I got to know them. We acted as a team and it was 20 years and we were a public company, half of it, it was really a grind. And it, we were in the same foxhole together. And a lot of this stuff applies to healthcare today, particularly some of the nursing homes and which not. It's, it's, it is not easy. And um, that's, that 
that would be understood by all of your listeners, I'm sure, but, and we'll talk more about it. But what I've learned, frankly, that to get back to your question is really just it reinforced what I learned, particularly in my last position, how powerful recognition can be in motivating people to do the right things. It, yeah. it, there's just no substitute for it. And even today, where we offer cash awards to selected honorees for, uh, for the SEEK award, it's not the cash, although many are living day to day, literally, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And we'll talk more about yeah. that too. But the money is important. I can't deny it with many, but it's all about the recognition. Let me ask you, though, about the extent to which we have a problem in this country with the availability and the quality and maybe the even the number of people available to give care. Do you see a particular challenge that we should know about? I think you described the problem very well at the outset of the program. You've got this yeah. big demographic. You know, I'm a baby boomer and we're coming through the, the pipeline mm -hmm. here and you've got this problem. How do you care for them? There are different venues. There are skilled nursing homes. Obviously, the hospitals are just temporary. They're, they're acute, what's called acute care. But there are other alternatives to nursing homes. There are integrated care facilities where you go in as an independent living and, and you right on through to when you pass on then there are memory care facilities and all this. So it's, it's hard to generalize, but I'll give it a stab. There's a broken business model. <laughs> I'll just start with the nursing homes because they're the easiest to understand in many ways. Let's just start with the people, the caregivers themselves. They're not paid much at all. <laughs> they uh, many have to have two jobs. They're on their feet all day. It's it's incredibly hard work. Uh, it's almost demeaning in many ways for the residents that they serve in terms of their disabilities and all that you have to do to support them. It's just a very tough situation starting out with the people that serve residents and their compensation levels. And it's not that the operators of these nursing homes are all a selfish capitalist. There are profits and nonprofits, and many of them share the same problems, which is they're not being paid enough for their services. And what happens is then the uh, caregivers then don't get paid enough. And that ends up being higher turnover, which is higher cost for the nursing homes, less care, you know, the quality of care goes down. I don't mean to indict so many caregivers. In fact, I, we've got thousands that we've recognized that are absolutely amazing sure. people but it is a very, very difficult environment. And I think it's the business model is broken. And it starts with a lot of complex regulations, who pays for the care, you know, Medicaid and, and so forth. And then on the other end, <laughs> it's a very difficult situation in the first place with the nursing homes, because a lot of the residents are, you know, these are end of life or seriously disabled people. And it's just very, very challenging work. So what got you attached to this? It is a big problem. And as you mentioned, maybe the business model is broken. The people who work in these institutions aren't paid very well. You could very easily have looked at this and said, I'm retired. Well, I don't, I can't 
deal with all this. This is for someone else to get involved in. What was it that made you say, no, there's something that we can do here. There's some value that I believe we can add and let's do it. What was it that turned the light switch on for you on this? Well, it was seeing a Medicaid dominant nursing home. And I was there as a volunteer and I hated it, but loved it. Mm. I don't mind joking around. And I'm usually at the butt end of my own jokes, as you'll see as we talk further, uh, and deservedly so. But just by laughing a little bit and treating them as equals and then getting the residents kind of laughing, which is rare in, in many healthcare settings. First of all, I liked it and figured that just what we did in online resources, just the recognition could actually be change the behavior of many of those staff members and their patients, their residents. It's a two-way street there. So I thought I could make an impact, basically using the model for online resources where we would they would be peer-to-peer recognition. You know, we have the SECA award and there are nominations that come in. We'll get into that a little bit later, but the bottom line of it is we ask people that nominate a peer, recognizing them for an outstanding act of care. And we look for things like empathy, humor, and so forth. But the number one, as it turns out, hot button in patient care is teamwork. And you'd think that it would be, you know, empathy or compassion and the, the other criteria that we have. Well, research has been done, and it turns out that, that people that are that cared for, when they see a staff that's upbeat and working together and positive, they feel better and more confident about their care. And it's all about changing culture in these facilities. They are bombarded with uh, regulations and uh, a very tough business model and some challenging healthcare duties. But if you're in that foxhole together, acting as a team, there's no better feeling. And you get that from athletics. I got it from starting companies. I had several, I skipped a couple failures. At the end of the day, it's, it's that sense of community and that sense of belonging. And maybe you can't get as much paid as much as you, you want, but when you're part of that team and you're seeing the good that you're doing and you're making a difference and you're part of something bigger, it's a wonderful feeling. And it was for me, just a natural thing to do because of just my background and having seen it work before. That's remarkable. I can see application for this throughout the nonprofit sector. This is something we should talk about after this. But there are so many people in nonprofit organizations in general that could benefit from that kind of recognition peer to peer. But let's go back to this particular use case. So you started SICA to recognize people who are providing the service. What has been the impact in your mind of that work? What have you been able to achieve with that through these recognition programs? How has it impacted the people and the institutions? So I'm out of business, Art, and your audience has heard plenty of that already, but I like to 
quantify things. We measure everything. There are three main measures. We look at the level of engagement in our program. How many of the employees get recognized per year and how many actually make a nomination? We get up to, it's amazing. We, we go into a facility and we'll baseline it and say uh, they start out at the 10% recognition rate per year. We're getting them up to 35, 40% now, which means that program, our program, not all the time, but in most cases is working very, very well. The second thing we do is what's called the net promoter score. For your audience that's not familiar with that, they'll be familiar when I define it. When somebody calls you up after you bought a product or a service and says, would you please answer this single question on a range between zero and 10? Zero mean highly unlikely, 10 mean absolute certainty. On that zero to 10, would you rate that product or service a zero or a 10? What would you rate it? 10 being, I'm absolutely going to go tell my friends about it and, and I'd buy it again, in effect. Well, you take that formula, you take the nines and the tens, and then you take the sixes and less. Six is the midpoint. You take the difference, and that's called the net promoter score. So it measures the intensity. So we couldn't go out and ask all the patients or all the residents what the net promoter score was for them. In fact, there are whole businesses that do this in healthcare and everything else. But we did something really sneaky. We asked the caregivers themselves whether they would recommend their a family member or friend to that particular facilities. And we call this the caregiver net promoter score. And boy, they're in there seeing the, the sausage made. <laughs> they're harder than sometimes the residents of the patients. But we measure that. And we baseline it and we track whether it's going up and it goes up. And not everybody's the same, but uh, definitely it, it, the program works. It's the last thing that we really look to is turnover. Turnover is the key to so much in terms of the, the patient care and in terms of the viability of that facility. When an employee leaves, it's unbelievably expensive. Nurses cost forty-five to 50000 just to find them, not that you pay them a lot more. So finding somebody, training them, but that's the tip of the iceberg. A new person ends up making mistakes. Well, that ends up hurting the patients. And I've just begun on the cost of turnover. So the extent that we measure turnover and, and improve that turnover, that is a variable in our success. So basically, it's two things. I'll go to award ceremonies and I'm now been kicked out by the staff here. They, they don't want me around. I, I, give, I do all these bad jokes. But honestly, you go onto our ceremonies and nine out of 10, no matter who they are, they could be a physician, it could be a little person who's pushing the broom or doing the laundry. They get the award and it's very, very emotional. And sometimes it's not a tear. there's a tear in everybody's eyes. And that's when I know the program works. All the stats do is, is basically reconfirm that. So I know we make an impact. You see it and you feel it. So how do you appeal to the public to participate? Do you, are there ways for people to contribute to 
this in some way financially or otherwise? Absolutely. Let me tell you where we're what we're trying to do. Sure. So we have approximately 50 nursing homes, hospitals. We're we're in the uh, mid-Atlantic. We're as far uh, south as Arkansas. We have 11 hospitals there. We're up in the Midwest now, into Pennsylvania, West Virginia. We like to take the program nationally. And there are mission reasons for doing that. We've got something that works. It's unique. I don't know of too many programs. Like there are some recognition programs, say, for example, nurses. There's an excellent program out there for them. But we, we call all the staff caregivers. So every one of them has a piece of their job is caregiving. So they may be cooking something, but they have opportunities to interface with that patient or that person. So basically the plan is to expand because the program works and it's extending our mission, but it's also financial. So we have a staff where what's called used to be called a private operating foundation. So we have operations. We're in there building software. We have account managers with each of the nursing homes and hospitals and uh, hospice and wherever we're serving. It's an operating organization that we have. Well, we have relatively fixed costs. There's a modest fee that a nursing home or hospital will pay us. And to the extent that we leverage our fixed costs, in other words, get the fees. Finally, if you expand, the fees start covering your fixed costs. So we'll expand our way into covering our fixed costs. The other part of what we do is we write these checks, you know, every month and a, a caregiver and a SICA award honoree gets $250 and we have annual awards, which are $2,500. So how do you finance that? Well, Rosemary and I have been financing that and gladly, and we got more, but if we're ever going to get to be national, we really, will depend upon other foundations or other charitable givers to share this with us. We'll, uh, we'll be around. And my, frankly, my goal is a, a very personal one here is when they bury me seven feet under, cause that's what it's going to take an extra foot. <laughs> I want this. I'd love for this foundation to be around and obviously somebody's going to else is going to be running it and they'll shape it to, whatever, but I, I hope that the values that we have extend on, I'll be long gone, but believe me, I don't know which way I'll be looking up or down, but <laughs> I will be looking hard at how Sika Foundation is doing. And I really would, anything help that people would have would, would be great. Let me just tell you how important I think this, this is a really important mission. I, I as again, I'll, I'll say the trajectory is that, you know, if you if you factor out what we went through with COVID, life expectancy will continue to rise. And with that are going to come problems with chronic diseases associated with aging. And we have to find ways of assisting people who are in, I will say, the, the fourth quarter of their lives. And, and some of that can't be managed with technology. Some of that has to be people willing to help other people. And to the extent that your work is providing at least a bridge for us to 
begin to address this on a more um, national scale with different business models to the extent that your work is providing a pathway for us to get to that by recognizing these caregivers, giving them a little bit more in their paychecks, making them feel the value that they truly present and deliver and holding up their service so others can appreciate what they do. And by the way, creating better care to the extent that all that is happening, what you're doing is an incredibly valuable piece of nonprofit work. And I just want to commend you for first thinking of it. And two, again, you could have done anything. You, you had the resources to go and spend the rest of your life in Tahiti somewhere if you chose and sip on cocktails. But that's not what you decided to do. That wasn't your orientation. Your orientation was to try to help and to try to use your resources and your influence and your technology and your knowledge to help us solve a problem in our country and maybe even around the world. So I just want to commend you. And I know you don't want to take any credit because that's, you know, you're this self-depreciating person. And I, and I've come across a number of them, but I'm just going to tell you that this is really important work that I think you're doing. And it's holding up a problem that we have in this country for more people to see and perhaps find their own pathway into helping us address. So let me just say that. Well, thank you. All right. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I think even in the beginning is uh, you need to have purpose. You need to have yeah. purpose. And my purpose used to be making you know, our customers and shareholders and employees happy. And I was doing my job uh, as an entrepreneur or as a, as a leader. This is this is also, in many ways, you're, we're, while we're recognizing caregivers, our ultimate goal is improving patient care. Yep. And there are many different models. People sometimes oversimplify healthcare. You know, for example, I was guilty of this. I said, if I'm at the end of the line, I want to be at home. I don't want to be in one of these institutions. This is the last place I want to be. Well, you learn a little bit more about healthcare, and I was just a neophyte when when we were starting to get going in 2000, and I guess it was uh, 2013. So we predated the pandemic. Thankfully, mm -hmm. we got started uh, before this hit. But at home is great. But you know, you have to have a caregiver there, and with families as spread out as they are now, and the toll that it puts on a family, it's not that people shouldn't do it. But the fact of the matter is many elderly are at home alone, yeah. alone. And it's not it's there's nothing worse than the loneliness, uh, honestly, that I can imagine. I know you, you can be it can be painful and whatnot. This death is not a lot of fun. Sometimes it can also be very peaceful if, if it's done in the right way. But you have to fit into uh, it's a complex sometimes at home is right. Sometimes a mix of being at home and at a central location, as in hospice. People think hospice is just at home. Well, there's also treatment centrally. Sometimes a nursing home is right. So, but there are principles <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's about care and humanness and respect for each other, for the patient. 
there are a lot of your audience that do that already (laughs) and do it in their way. I found this way that that's meaningful for me. And I really do believe we we can make an impact. And I appreciate the compliment, but frankly, (laughs) there are a lot of other people doing the same thing. I want to hold you up because of what you're doing, obviously, but also because you could be an example to others. I mean, there, there are lots of people who did very well in our economy. They're able to retire. They're able to live very comfortable lives. And they have a lot to give. And I want people to look at your example and find ways for them to give back to. It's so important that they do that. Because our society can't make it with just, um, I will say, government alone. We need government, of course. Government does a lot. But many of the things government does first starts with an acorn that some individual decided to peel. And when they started peeling that, they saw that there was an opportunity to serve and then later on get government involved so that a real problem could be solved. So what started out as an acorn grew into a tree of service and a problem solved in our society. And I want to hold you up as an acorn. (laughs) Well, my, my wife says I'm a nut. A nut. Well, well, there you the go. Acorn. That's a lot better than just. Well, you a nut. know, there's some of that too. Yeah, there's some of that too. There, yeah. there are people <laughs> who do this aren't often seen. Yeah, as sane. You know, why in the world would you do this at this point in your life? Is what you're going to hear from a lot of people. Why in the world would you get into this after spending all of these years working for a living, building? an opportunity to sit back. Now you want to get into this? Yes, I do want to get into this. And it's not unnatural, even though some may see it as unnatural. Some may see it as nutty to do this, (laughs) but it's not. It's important to do this. I believe it's necessary to do this. And I believe our country is founded on that. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you are so right, Art, but uh, one size does not fit all. You know, my background was, I, I'm an ont- entrepreneur. It, I'd get fired if I had a big organ. I wouldn't have blasted at, uh, at, at that bank that I work for, no matter how much influence the, chair, the CEO had. I just wasn't meant for a bigger organization. I, I just applied what I knew to a business that I didn't really know, healthcare. I was doing banking, you know, online banking and payments. We were in 15% of the homes and all this kind of stuff. I've walked away from that. I love what I'm doing right now. And and I'm able to apply some of the skills that I had in my prior life. Well, I don't belittle someone that likes playing golf or reading or whatnot, but it should have meaning. And if you just thoroughly enjoy people and you're out there uh, not cheating on your golf score or anything like that, but making (laughs) friends, fine. I would say that you start looking beyond yourself. 
about what you can give back. That's a cliche, I realize. You don't have to devote full time to it, but find something where you can give back. It's like uh, you have to keep trying at it. And you get to a stage, I don't know how many uh, contemporaries I have that, that were very, very su successful in their young years, for example. They made a pile of money when they were 40 years old. That's really tough, honestly. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's no edge to it. <laughs> for me, I needed some element of risk and no, no challenge to it when we ha you have that much dis at, at your disposal. But you start thinking as you get along, I have all this. I don't need it all myself. My kids probably could use some of it, but condemning them with all that money is that's what it is. It's a condemnation. Mm -hmm. This is just personal opinion. I, mm -hmm. I hope I don't offend any of your listeners. But the bottom line of it is, is you got to try some things. And uh, whether you're an entrepreneur like myself that's used to failure and some successes, it's that you have some other way to give back. And there's so many ways that it can really make your life whole. It's that simple, but it all boils down to keeping meaning in your life. And yeah. it's uh, you, you're a grandfather. Yeah, uh, I am. You're too young to be a grandfather. <laughs> not if quite. the audience could see me, they'd say, you're too old not to be a grandfather because <laughs> uh, I've still got two boys that, that once I think gonna gonna, he says he's moving forward with it. <laughs> at the end of the day, you gotta find meaning. And yeah. it's, it's uh, with your another generation, fine. I'd enjoy it and relax. You're retired. But... So, Matt, where can we find you on the Internet? All over the place. But, but seriously, our email address and website is sikafoundation.org. That's C-E-C-A foundation.org. And Sika is basically a mash between celebrating C-E caregiver ca sika foundation.org visit the the site we love having volunteers particularly as we roll out across the country uh, donations always help employees help and most important lots of hospitals nursing homes hospice uh, memory care <laughs> call us up or, or get to us at the website let me just say we're going to have to end it on on this note but i want to just thank you for joining me and finding meaning is everything. No matter what stage of life you're in, you have to find meaning, I think. So this is a great point to sort of end the conversation on. And to all of our listeners, you've been tuned in to the Heart of Giving podcast, obviously. And our guest has been Matt Lawler. He's the founder and, and co-chair of SICA, an organization that is focused on celebrating caregivers in the United States. And we're really excited for what he's doing. And we want to thank him for what he's doing. And we want to encourage him to continue. And for all of you who are listening and tuning in to the podcast for the first time, you can listen to other episodes on all major podcast platforms. And if you subscribe, you will get all of our episodes as they come out each week. So please uh, make sure you subscribe to the show. If you're so kind as to want to donate to the show to help with production, you can make a donation on give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, or you can also find us on patreon.com. 
So thank you for listening, and we hope to have you back here next week for a new episode. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.